Hi, I'm Robert Enlow, President and CEO of EdChoice, and welcome to another edition of our monthly State Debrief podcast. Every month we get together to discuss what's going on with educational choice and educational freedom in America. We talk about states and what they're doing to try and ensure that families have greater educational options. In this current world, we're talking a lot about new delivery mechanisms of education. Everything from pandemic pods to learning pods to micro schools to micro grant programs, there's this entire, and I love this word, plethora of new options out there that families are sort of using from the bottom up. Homeschooling, we know from our polling, is on the increase. We know that people are migrating between public, private, charter, and homeschooling quite a bit. There's a lot of movement in this COVID world as schools try to struggle with reopening and getting back together. Along the way, parents are saying, we're just going to do it ourselves. We're done with this. We're going to try some new ideas. And there are a lot of operators coming alongside and saying, great, I'll help you out. And that's where the concept of micro schools comes in. So I guess the first question we're going to talk about micro schooling today on our monthly state uh, debrief is, what are micro schools? Jason, tell us what you think they are. Yeah, so there's no real perfect, widely agreed upon definition, and they take multiple forms. But I would say, generally speaking, micro schools, uh, learning pods, they are small clusters of families that are pooling their resources together in order to educate their children outside of a traditional classroom. And so National School Choice Week helpfully divides these into two different groups. You've got self-directed pods. These often take the form of homeschools or homeschool collaboratives. These usually take place in parents' you know, living rooms, and the parents themselves have full control over the different curricular choices they're taking. Sometimes they hire a tutor on their own. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes the parents are taking turns, sometimes at one person's house or in multiple people's houses. Like I said, it can take many, many different forms. And many of these, particularly the, the so-called pandemic pods, are a short-term solution sort of to wait out the pandemic until parents feel comfortable returning to the type of schooling environment they had before the pandemic. Others are more permanent. You know, there, there are organizations like, for example, Acton Academy or Prenda that have been doing micro-schooling for years. And that actually leads us to the second type of pod, which National School Choice Week calls a learning support pod. So these type of pods usually are parts of a network. Many of them are actually connected to a charter school or to a private school or some other sort of entity that is providing more centralized support, often with curricular materials or instructors, that sort of thing. So they can take various different forms and they interact differently with state laws. Before we go to the next level, you're blowing my mind here, right? <laughs> are these public schools? Are they private schools? Are they what kind? Are they a school? What? Wait a minute. How do I wrap my head as a parent around what the hell these things are? What are these things? If we can't define them so easily, the answer essentially is yes. There is not a real clear definition yet in law, and so it can be somewhat confusing. But parents are finding their way through. I mean, what, what parents, I, I think, are really liking about this is they have a much greater degree of control over the type of learning environment their child is in. And they've got a whole bunch of different options out there, and there's a lot of freedom and flexibility to customize your child's education. So it's no wonder that uh, EdChoice's latest morning consult survey 
found that 33% of families say they have identified a pod that they are planning to put their children in. And then another 14% said that they are uh, still looking to form a pod. So that's almost half of families that we surveyed said they were either joining or looking to join a pod. It's a very popular option right now. All right, so micro-schooling is hard to define, but it's parent-driven, and it happens in, in a variety of different mechanisms in different ways. So tell me some ideas of what's going on in the states. How is it being used in the different states that we serve? Jordan, is it going on in New Hampshire and other places you're working in? Sure, Robert. Yeah, parents are using micro-schools as a resource during this pandemic everywhere. Interesting enough, the way states have responded to micro-schools and potential regulations with them, there's been a difference between how states have responded. We'll use an example, New Hampshire. Currently, they've relaxed requirements as far as being able to have students under a roof micro-schooling. Initially, there were some talks about needing to be licensed as a daycare. This type of language and regulation has been brought up in several states. New Hampshire responded well with the governor offering an executive order to where now parents just need to file verification forms with the Department of Health and Human Services in order to do minimal background checks on those who would be running pods. So that's one example of how regulations have gotten involved. I'll look at another state with Pennsylvania. They have relaxed requirements as well for many of the regulations that would affect microschooling. For example, in the past, you wouldn't be able to have a group of children participating under a microschool type format for more than 90 consecutive days. They've relaxed that type of requirement. And there, the Department of Human Services has put together a plan that families that want to start microschools can use to register their microschool. Part of these plans include health and safety, evacuation plans, making sure that there's fire detection systems. I point these out as examples. You can see that because microschooling is such a new phenomenon and not everyone is sure about what it is, different states have had different regulations attached to what microschools are and how they can conduct themselves. Jordan, that's super interesting to hear about how two states are, are looking at it and looking at it differently. Lauren, how about some of your states? How are they looking at the idea of microschooling and how are they implementing the idea? So the Carolinas are also, you know, working through what education looks like in the midst of a global pandemic. And while one would have hoped that we perhaps would be past this at this point in time, we're not. And I think that as we've talked to parents, as we've talked to educators, as we've, you know, talked with students, EdChoice just did a great polling result over what students felt as they returned back to school. The hopes that when the school year dismissed in the spring of 2020, you know, that the fall would come around and be business as usual has not proven true. And I think that that is especially important in places like the Carolinas, where you have such tourism-based hubs. And, you know, in a time when perhaps family vacations aren't happening or in a time when just vacationing in the summer looks and feels different, the Carolinas had their own struggles as the pandemic went through and had hot spots that popped up. And then it's made reopening their states an especially difficult challenge to work through. So we do see parents really kind of grasping out for what do I do? What, what are my options? How can I continue to make sure that my child, A, continues to learn, right? At the foremost of those parents' concerns, 
making sure their child is, is met where they're at and that they continue to have educational gains. But then also the conversation of, well, I have to go back to work myself. And so how do we do this if my traditional ed school isn't open? And those have been kind of conversations that have happened. How the states are handling it, I think, is a, a state-by-state analysis and similar to somewhat of, of what Jordan's discussed, South Carolina's had conversations about, you know, does this need to be regulated like a child care center? Or does there need to be a set curriculum? And I think that that is a question that each state is grappling with and working through. But the common theme, I would say, is that parents and children, they're looking for options. They're looking for ways to learn this fall. I really appreciate hearing that from the Northeast and then the Southeast and Maybe we should look to the wild, wild west to see what's going on out there, Jason. Sort of like, where's Nevada and Arizona on the idea of microschooling? In fact, hasn't Nevada done something amazingly innovative, or at least not the state, but the city? Yes. Yeah, so North Las Vegas, Nevada, which we talked about, I think, on our last uh, monthly debrief, has actually created their own system of micropods that they are charging families $2 a day to access. And there's actually even some financial support for families who can't even afford that. But they are finding ways of serving families in their community during the pandemic by embracing this innovation rather than uh, trying to regulate it out of existence. And then in Arizona, it's not the state doing it, but just even before the pandemic, we saw tremendous growth in the microschool sector, particularly a new entrant, Prenda. So Prenda Microschools started in January of 2018 with one microschool with seven students. Two years later, January of 2020, just before the pandemic, they had more than 100 microschools around the state, including in some really underserved areas, like in Native American reservations and other very rural areas, serving a higher percentage of students with special needs than the traditional public school. So really doing a great job of finding and serving disadvantaged populations. But like I said, even before the pandemic, they grew from one microschool serving seven kids to over 100 microschools serving more than 1,000 kids. Since the pandemic, they have grown to almost 400 microschools serving more than 4,000 students around the state. So parents really are flocking to that option. And that, of course, has drawn opposition. So like all new innovations or all new ideas or all ideas coming from the bottom up sometimes, the adults in the room don't like it when people start thinking their own way and having their own mind. And, and this is what's happening right now with microschooling. So there are lots of attacks going on because of a, a variety of reasons, right? Not the least of which it's new and people don't necessarily understand it. But there are two main lines of attack going on around the country about these, this new idea of educational freedom. And let's talk about those for a few minutes. And so First of all, they're going to try and do the old death of a thousand cuts through regulation and, and definitions. And so how are they trying to do that right now around the country with microschooling? Jordan, you might want to talk about some of your states. Yeah. So we brought up the idea earlier of having to license them as a child care center or a daycare. These add a lot of extra regulations and hoops and hurdles that they would have to go through in order to set up a facility. And part of the great thing about microschooling is that it's inherently flexible for families. And as you said, death by a thousand cuts, that's what some of these regulations are trying to do. Some regulations go as far as sprinkler systems. They go into having certain types of plans needed that 
take a lot of effort on the side of the family and encumber the amount of time it takes to actually set up the micro school itself. Jason, what about you? What are you hearing from your states about how they're trying to regulate these new ideas? Yeah, I would concur with that. I've heard a number of, uh, I mean, these are anecdotal reports, but families who are trying to microschool that suddenly get a letter in the mail or a phone call from some bureaucrats, either at the state level or at their, from their school district saying, you know, just so you know, you're operating an unlicensed daycare. And so trying to shut them down using those laws. There is a great resource, schoolchoiceweek.com slash learning hyphen pods. Again, that's schoolchoiceweek.com forward slash learning dash pods. And they've got information for every single state about how microschools fit in with the existing regulatory scheme. So in a lot of states, you will find particularly the self-directed learning pods can be classified as homeschool co-ops. And so if you file the right paperwork, then you're not going to be considered an unlicensed daycare or have to go get a license to operate a daycare and have all those sorts of regulations attached to them. And yes, look, this is not to say that there should be zero regulations on microschooling or homeschooling or what have you, but we have to be very cautious. Even some reasonable sounding regulations, when you add so many of them, like you said, it could end up to death like a thousand cuts. So is it reasonable that they have an evacuation plan in the event of a fire? Certainly. But we want to make sure that this is still an option that is easy to but access. But do we require that of every home, Jason? Sorry, so do we require an evacuation plan for every right. home-based business and every home-based entity or no, every place not. that might meet in a park? I mean, right. let's say the micro school meets in a park because they're in Arizona or they meet in a different place that has no concept. Why do we, why do we voice these ideas of, of inane regulations on something where they don't need to be. Right, that's certainly true. I mean, people are welcome to live in their homes without being harassed like this. And that's why, for the most part, the homeschooling statutes avoid these sorts of regulations. I was saying that even where these things sound reasonable, when they add up, they can be quite unreasonable. Secondly, when states are trying to step in and say, well, we're going to require testing or we want some sort of control of your curriculum, I mean, those are clear red lines that uh, the school choice movement has to be prepared. Those are the hills to die on. We cannot allow the district school system to undermine the freedom and flexibility that parents are seeking in these sorts of environments. If you really want this sort of innovation, that's the sort of regulations that would absolutely strangle it. Lauren, are you finding some of the same attacks on microschools in your states? I think that there's always going to be an interest in protecting and serving children. And I think that the similar regulations, perhaps the well-intended, can have devastating consequences. And I think that's where we are seeing a repeated history. In some of these states, most frequently, at least in, in my redneck of the woods, it's been about regulating them as child care centers. And I think what's fundamentally important to recognize is that micro-schooling is just that. It's parentally-led parental choice, and it is brought to you in a variety of ways. And so long as the option remains, and so long as a variety of delivery methods to education can survive, we have a chance to not only educate and equip these children during a global pandemic, but perhaps to find a new way of schooling that works best for them. And so I think that we're certainly seeing similar regulatory structures pop up again and again and again and again. And I think that, you know, parents are beginning to talk about this 
from just a very practical standpoint, like you guys had, had talked about, of course, it, best practice would be to have a an evacuation in your home um, and, and you, you might even practice that with your children. But are you required to write that down and file it with the state? And are you required to review that and have a fire department come out and check that? No. And so I think the, the common sense here around micro-schooling is really the logic to win the day. And I certainly hope that that's what we see as we, we move through these very challenging times. I think that's exactly right. And you've got to remember the definition of, of seat time and when we decided to do that and how many grades we needed to have uh, was all decided by a group called the Committee of 10 in 1892. Possible that we've moved on a bit since then. I'm not sure we have in some areas of our world, but it, certainly I think in education we, we can. Unfortunately, this regulatory attack is only one part of the way that uh, people are going after micro-schooling and pods. Another thing is, is through public relations. And I know that in the last uh, few weeks, we have seen Prenda in Arizona get taken on by people who are opposed to it. And it's even gone in the Arizona Republic and now the USA Today. So Jason, talk a little bit about the PR attack. Yeah, we've seen this in a number of areas from anti-school choice groups, teachers unions, and, and now it's making it in, into the mainstream press. So there is this report that came out from the Arizona Republic on Prenda Microschools that has now been picked up by USA Today, in which they claim that, quote, Prenda exploits gaps in regulation and oversight in the hopes of growing so fast and large that it alters the industry it seeks to disrupt, end quote. Now, I mean, one translation of that is that Prenda has found new and innovative ways of serving families, and the bureaucrats haven't caught up yet to this way of thinking. They compare Prenda with Uber, and I actually think this is a favorable comparison. Uber is not perfect. No human-built institution is, but they were far better than the existing system, right? Uber was much easier to access via your app. It was a lot easier to pay for Uber. You know, you didn't get into a taxi. Sometimes you get into a taxi cab and only at the end of the ride, you find out they want cash and they, that their credit card machine uh, mysteriously isn't working. You know, even before you get into the car, you know the name of the driver, you're able to rate the driver and see the driver's ratings. I mean, these are all, and it's all at a lower cost, right? These were all things that the taxi cab industry could have been doing, but because they had this regulatory system you know, with medallions that, that raised the barrier to entry and kept competition out, the industry essentially, you know, you, you had a, not quite a monopoly, but at least an oligopoly. And they were very reluctant to change. And so when you had this new entrant come in, all of a sudden the taxi system actually has improved. You see the taxis are now using apps and taxis are allowing you to rate drivers and things like that. There's the same thing with Uber. What they're really talking about when it comes to Uber, though, is once the taxi cabs caught on to the fact that a whole bunch of their consumers were switching over from taxis to Uber, they immediately turned to the regulators and said, hey, protect us and regulate them out of existence. When the regulators tried to do that, they found that Uber had already developed such a large constituency that was so happy with their superior service that they were actually unable to get rid of Uber. I mean, they're still trying and they're, they're having some success in some areas. There's a new law in California that may actually drive Uber and Lyft and some of these other rideshare companies out of the state. But by and large, attempts to regulate Uber to death have failed because Uber's customers have come to their defense. And I think you're seeing the same thing in the micro school realm. The people who have an interest in protecting the status quo 
are trying to regulate competition out of existence. And before they're going to have the opportunity to do that, at least in some states like Arizona, I think you're going to see so many families that are using these options and saying, hey, wait, this is far superior to what I was getting before, that they are going to be the ones that rise up and protect it. Uh, but just to, just real quick, uh, I know I'm already going long. I want to read one other quote to give you an idea of the sort of things they're getting at, right? So quote, Prenda is not a private school, a charter school, or a public school, but at different times it operates as all three, drawing taxpayer funding or support for each type of school. It teaches public and private school students in the same classroom, which may not be legal under Arizona law, right? So they're they're kicking up this sort of dust and they're saying, you know, what what is it? It's hard to tell. Right? They want to make everything legible. They want, it, they want everything to fit in a nice, clean box. What is the problem with some kids learning in the same room that are charter school kids as kids who are public school kids, as kids who are private school kids? And the, re the reason they bring this up is because Prenda is an interesting model. Prenda, in some cases, people are accessing it through the education savings account in Arizona, particularly families uh, with, which have children with special needs and they're paying essentially out of pocket using their ESA. In other cases, they're accessing it through a charter school. Prenda, they subcontract uh, with an online charter school called EdKey. So some kids are getting it as a charter school student. Now, in other cases, they've actually created partnerships with uh, public, traditional public schools. So some kids are being counted as a public school student, but they are in a micro school classroom. What is the problem if these kids are all in the same classroom learning together? I mean, that's that's not really clear. So families are accessing it with a variety of different ways. There are thousands of Arizona kids that are now using the option. Uh, and this, by the way, is is not um, something, this is something the public schools have been doing too. Public schools have been subcontracting, for example, with Florida Virtual Academy during the pandemic. We need, especially now, to find new and different ways of allowing parents to access the type of education that works best for their kid. That's what it comes down to. And ultimately, that's what microschooling is all about, right? The idea of microschooling or pods or whatever we want to call about it. It's about getting parents getting in where they fit in, it's about getting sure that families have the opportunities for their kids in, in environments that work best for them and getting rid of this concept of a school building that is probably gone or a school type that's gone. And, and we think that that's what's going to be happening in the future. And, and microschooling is one of those new ideas that's going to take us to the future. So... We really appreciate you joining us today as a state team and on our monthly state debrief. You can always get a hold of us anytime you want at www.edchoice.org or at edchoice.org because we don't say the W's anymore in the world. And you can always get us on any of the podcast outlets that you can find on our Engage site. So thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next month.